The Sacred Changemakers podcast is supported by Coaches Business School, helping the world's most caring coaches build a purpose-driven and profitable business that makes a meaningful impact in our world. Check out their unique frameworks and methods to help you transform and grow your business. Now is the time to build a bridge from what you want in life to include what the world needs. You can do well in business and do good, and together we can make a meaningful difference. Find out more at coachesbusinessschool.com. Hey there, and welcome back to our latest episode on the Sacred Changemakers podcast. Our guest today is Michael Hengel, the founding president of 1492, who started his career as an international ski racer and became an entrepreneur at the age of 19. As a senior director, Michael drove a global transformation initiative based on collective intelligence methods that achieved 100% annual performance improvement and an impressive 3 billion euro in added value. His contribution to Daimler Leadership 2020 was recognized as exemplary by Harvard Business, and he received the German HR Excellence Award 2018 for outstanding change management achievements. Now, in addition to his academic writings, blogging for Harvard Business and coaching, he gives inspiring talks and teaches at renowned universities worldwide. And in today's conversation, you're going to hear how Michael's early training as a ski racer encouraged him to learn the importance of mental preparedness, understanding that if he could control his mind, he could control his performance on skis, which then sparked Michael's interest in the coordination of muscles and how it contributes to success. So he kind of carried this metaphor of coordination from the body to the business world, leading him to conduct extensive research with icons like Rupert Sheldrake and to apply his findings in large organizations. Now, there is no doubt, as you're going to hear, that Michael is a brilliant mind who has dedicated his life to understanding and harnessing the power of coordination and collective intelligence in various aspects of our lives. From those early days as a passionate skier to his groundbreaking research on coordination in large corporations and even in society, Michael has been on something of a mission to unlock the potential of collective intelligence. So join us as we explore the importance of mental readiness, skill and muscle coordination in achieving greatness and how these principles actually can be applied to business and organizational life, fostering a remarkable customer experience and employee performance. Discover the connections between engagement, leadership and establishing a common connection within teams and prepare yourself to be inspired as Michael shares his insights on enriching the world with collective intelligence, the role of diversity in problem solving, and the power of systemic thinking. He uncovers how collective intelligence and AI-powered technologies can revolutionize decision-making, and how an ecosystem mindset can lead to greater performance and understanding. So buckle up for an episode that's filled with wisdom, thought-provoking ideas, and a vision for a future where coordination and collective intelligence shape a better world. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Michael Hengel. Michael, let me welcome you quite officially to the Sacred Change Makers podcast. It's so great to have you here with me, my friend. Now, our audience, they have just heard your professional bio, but I'd love to kind of go beneath the scenes a little bit with you and get you to share something of the real life human that is behind that bio. Who is he? Who is he? Oh, that took a long time <laughs> to figure out. And of course, in the beginning, I, I uh, clinched to a lot of identifications and identities. Uh, if you ask me, if you wake me up four o'clock in the night, and ask me, who are you? I would answer most likely with, I'm pure consciousness, manifesting in this and that, whatever it is. And uh, usually in business, I'm in the role or in the identification of a CEO of the 1492 group. Mm, 
Right. So tell us a little bit about that. What What is your work? What are you passionate about right now? I was passionate always on the topic or the umbrella of coordination performance. And that started as a as a teenager or as a kid in training or being trained how to be a ski racer. And one very wise trainer, um, we did a lot of mental um, training in the 70s. So he was uh, my first encounter to an inner world or the inner game. And he said, well, if you can control your mind, you can control your skis. So let's explore that. So and that made total sense. And in that sense, it was, of course, the insight which was provided by the coaches. His name is Baldur Breimer. And he was introducing us that it's not the strength as such which makes you a winner. It's the mental readiness. It's your, your skill. And, of course, it is the coordination of your muscles, which are so smart to make you uh, turn the skis with 100 kilometers an hour or 60 miles an hour where you cannot think any longer. So you need to be ready to somehow manifest it or experience it uh, to become a winner. And if you're not good in that, uh, the craft and the training and the uh, all the other stuff will take you at maximum to mediocrity. So and I applied that uh, at a very young age where I become an entrepreneur by destiny, I, I applied that metaphor of a lot of muscles needs to be coordinated and, and, and collaborating in a really smart way in your, from the body into the business. Because I had a lot of people with different skills and to provide a great customer experience, they need to really coordinate well. And so th that intrigued me even from a teenager onwards into uh, deep research with very prestigious institutes, uh, which now later became, um, of course, our profession, our vocation, I would say, to really explore that on large corporates. Mm. And it would also work on society. So the question is, the gap between rich and poor is a coordination issue. The gap between uh, the haves and haves not is a coordination issue. And uh, it needs to have kind of the same ingredients to a certain extent. And the body needs to make a fast turn in skiing. Then a country like the US or China or Europe needs on, on this large scale of society to make the right turns at the right time. Right. Now, you mentioned there that you did research that actually brought you to this, this knowing that you have some incredible insights that we are going to go into in this conversation. But what was the research that actually led you here? I, uh, the research was really uh, with teams at the University of Wittenherdiger, some very small uh, university founded uh, by entrepreneurs free from state and religion, as they claimed. And at that university, I was uh, teaching and researching there 10 years from 1998 to 2008. And uh, they gave me a carte blanche, as you would say, to pick my topic. And I picked, of course, social learning. Mm -hmm. uh, because I was very hungry. I grew up on a very remote mountain place and not a, not a lot of kids around. So uh, I was intrigued by people and uh, that led me to the situation that I asked uh, for my job title as um, yeah, a teacher and lecturer on social learning. So not what do I learn from books and from abstract ideas, but what can I learn from you and my wife and kids and colleagues and teachers in a social way? That was uh, the first um deep dive into that. And of course, one layer built uh, underneath of that was uh, this, this skiing world where everything is about measured in time. So to measure something was was kind of normal for me. It was intrinsically, it was a habit. Uh, if, you, if you have just some ideas and you say, well, this is it, then it's a belief. It was kind of a, a swear word, actually. 
uh, we wanted to know, not to just believe or assume. And so there we measured uh, in teams how fast they can solve problems and how collaborative or how communicative they are and what team compositions are there. So that was the first part to deep dive. Mm, so interesting. Now, you said in your opening that, you know, the, the wealth gap that we struggle with these days socially is, is a coordination issue. So what do you mean by that? Because you're talking about coordination performance, and I've, ne I've actually never heard that term before. Um, the collective <laughs> intelligence uh, basically groups around three topics uh, from our perspective. You can you can detail it, of course, but the one topic is is coordination. So right. uh, together together with Rupert Sheldrick, we looked into coordination of swarms, schools of fish, swarm flocks of birds, and other swarms because they are in that uh, craft or art. Perfect. Even two eagles sometimes coordinate perfectly. So as if they would be one or if they are super organism behaving mm -hmm. as one and uh, social insects do that. So those large termites built um, uh, nests and, and great towers uh, as if the one ant would know what the other ant is doing. And one of the explanations or the hypothesis about it is that there would be a superorganism, and therefore it's not a miracle that your right hand knows what your left hand is doing. And if we see it with a divert, as a, with a separation, or if the right hand is divorced from the left hand, of course that makes individuals or smaller entities where we wonder how they could behave. And the second part is collaboration or co-creation, as we call it. So how can we build on each other's ideas to, to design something which hasn't been there before? And the third one is cognition or what we call collective intelligence. So how can you acquire ideas and information which are relevant to solve a problem? And so coordination was always uh, coming from sports. It's a coordination problem mm -hmm. and transporting that to different layers, like to your body. That's a metaphor where can, you can observe great stuff and learn a lot then you can put it into teams you can put it also on a higher level into societies and um, the question of course is is it coordinated with a high performance uh, where all the participants or agents uh, are behaving or, or acting anti-fragile so they become much better the worse it gets or do you sacrifice the one or the other? So if you do not pay attention on your coordination issues, you as a, as a human body, you have a big brain, but very uh, small limbs or in sports, you have very strong arms, but no legs. That That's not really a great symmetry. And then some of the skills, they suffer. And in mm -hmm. society, translated that to society, if you have these big wealth gaps, of course, that's not a healthy situation. If you come from a biological metaphor, translating that into society, then you, you immediately see that that's actually um, out of proportion. Mm. And it, 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 uh, you pay a price, uh, you pay a price for it. Huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, I, I totally get that, of course. And I love the way you're describing here what sounds to me as I'm listening to you, Michael, like the interrelatedness of all things, because it's like you're taking a step back and holistically looking at exactly the reality in oh, a way. I, <laughs> no, I really like that you like it because... It is something which is not obvious because if you're young or a teenager or some, you, you love to take sides and then you become very righteous uh, mm -hmm. about and you fight for your opinion. Uh, understanding a little later, hopefully, that uh, actually even two opinions could be right at the same time. Yeah, and then uh, your your mind kind of struggles with that idea that two things could be right at the same time. And uh, in the, I call it the Pacific mindset. So the, the Hinduistic, uh, Buddhistic ideas, it's not so unfamiliar, 
uh, than in the Atlantic mindset. Mm -hmm. In the Atlantic mindset, as I call it, <laughs> I gave it a label. Uh, it's people love to be on the side of something. And I believe we have to pay with the whole coin. You cannot uh, pay with half a coin, even not with half a Bitcoin. And I think you're speaking to something very important here, because in the Atlantic mindset, for me, that's the hyper individualistic kind of culture Absolutely. where we've kind of, you know, in a way we're hyper focused on the individual but what you're doing here is you're you're kind of widening the aperture of the lens that we look at problems through or the lens that we just look at life and leadership and business through. That's what I'm feeling. It feels like you're expanding my view here. At least that's an exercise, uh, not just an intellectual. I think if you understand the big picture, then you're not so uh, vulnerable making failures in all the details. Mm. If you if you understand the level of the forest, of course, then there are trees and there are uh, nitty gritty details. And and then you have a system competence, not just a, a white color uh, subject matter expertise. You 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 can more elegantly maneuver conflicts and try to. To, to orchestrate or to curate them in a way that they are complementary. So even mm -hmm. people with one very strong opinion, it, it's a legal problem or a marketing problem and helping them to turn it into an opportunity and then saying, well, it's uh, don't share what the problem is, please share what the contribution is. And then you could rather orchestrate it. It's much faster than upgrading individuals and helping them to grow that takes uh, usually uh, longer but mm -hmm. helping the team to perform that's the beauty of the collective intelligence it's a fast track into a better coordination a better co-creation uh, on large scale it's a better performance uh, on the balance sheet but it all starts with people who can see both sides or who don't take sides and i love Actually, I think it's originally from a quote from Ken Wilber to say, well, everybody is right. I think that's a great beginning. Uh, it will be at the end of a process not, not totally true because maybe pe some people have more fit to a problem than others at a given moment of time or context. But to start where everybody is right is... Uh, is a great start. And I think it, it, it has proven that it is uh, sustainable. It, it brings better results in, in with less effort. Mm -hmm. And everybody loves it. So, so if you have a if you have a pitch or a proposal or prospect, say, well, you achieve more happiness with less effort, everybody kind of likes it, yeah. So this is our maybe. Okay. Uh, Deepak Chopra called it the sponta real, spontaneous realization of desires called luck. <laughs> and and uh, everybody likes it. And I think teams and groups and we brains, as we call it, they, they're very, uh, very helpful for that. Yeah. And it's interesting because as I'm listening to you talk, it it's it feels startlingly obvious to me, like one of the biggest problems we have is in organizational life particularly, is that we try to solve every problem through like the individual, whether it's the individual CEO at the top that, you know, needs to shift and make decisions and change things. If I think about America, it's the president, you know, it's it's like we hyper focus on this individual. So straight away, you're taking us into a different dimension, I feel, because straight away we're looking at the collective which of course is harking from my background into systems thinking right and in systems thinking I learned that everybody is partially right right that that was the thing that I learned that's the starting point for systems thinking so is collective intelligence the same as systems kind of thinking where you see the interrelatedness of other things or is there something unique and different about it. I think it's a, it's a next step in evolution. Right. Because uh, if you look back to where the systemic or system thinking uh, came from, and actually came from, at least from uh, our perspective, uh, from sociology, from Maturana and Varela to 
biologists who, who made great research in the 70s and saying, well, uh, you can, uh, if you want to interfere in a, on a cellular level, uh, the cells are immune against information and structure. They only respond to, to energy. And uh, a German uh, sociologist, uh, icon in the German world, um, um, Luhmann, uh, translated or transported that into society and say, well, if organizations which have a kind of a, a, a shell around them, like they feel the sense of an identity, if they are immune against information and structure from the outside, so they, in a metaphor, we call it their immune system of organizations, they don't let it through. So if expert consultings come from the big five uh, with great ideas, it's so stunning that very little of, of those ideas could be really translated into action or executed. And maybe this is the reason why. And um, so, in the 70s and 80s, it's, it's that idea flipped into family therapy in, in, in Germany and Europe. And there it makes total sense. If you have a kid uh, misbehaving or uh, socially awkward or whatever, and you, um, you, you ask for help uh, from a therapist, it's very difficult to do therapy on a seven-year-old or on a five-year-old or on a 12-year-old because a lot of psychological functions are not there yet, like taking on responsibility. It, it, it appears in a solid way much, much later at the age of 14, 15, even 17. They can really understand the concept of responsibility and not blaming their brothers and mothers and, and the teachers and say, well, what's my share? And there it makes total sense that you include into your uh, interventions, also the the family members or even grandparents, or because it's in the system maybe the problem that this kid is misbehaving. Because if everybody's very ambitious, of course you have a backdraft in the system that some people uh, create the the wholeness by doing their opposite if it's out of wake yeah? and if it's out of proportion. And, and their system theory had a big, big uh, renaissance in their uh, in the family therapy or family enterprises or small and medium-sized enterprises. And, and today, even there, a lot of uh, problems couldn't be solved uh, because you may diagnose the problem, right? Mm -hmm. But then you cannot change it. And, and putting collective intelligence on the next level makes total sense because the in a nutshell, I love to share the the smallest way to explain it with with an an an, um, an experience everybody had. If you lost your key, your car key, and uh, you run to your car and 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 then you figure out, oh, I, I forgot it, I lost it somewhere, and you run back to your apartment or your office, then most people uh, using the collective intelligence and not just the system to acquire the information where the key is because then very few people just look up their jackets and their desk themselves. Most people yell into the room or into the office, has somebody seen my car key? And maybe <laughs> one in the, seen it at the, at the uh, washroom. Yeah? Okay. And then of course they, they say, well, it's in the washroom. If you're in a hurry, it helps a lot. Uh, it's of, of course out of my personal life experience. And then you see that asking other people for information or data or knowledge, then, of course, uh, you are much faster and it's more effortless to get the information you need for the first half of uh, the problem solving. Second half, you need to open the car yourself, of course. And all that is only possible if you have good relations. So if you had a lot of arguments with all the people or you even were telling them off and it was very very upset uh, then you can do the same thing ask for for favors but everybody is silent mm -hmm. or even sabotages you if somebody has seen the key they put the pillow on top of it so that you have more struggle to find <laughs> it and so therefore good relations are, are really a prerequisite for collective intelligence on an analog level and I think this is one step above the um, uh, system 
theory because you cannot solve all the problems by manipulating the systems. In a way, you need also to work on the mindset of people to prevent to to create good relations and and to stay talkative and communicate uh, uh, open. Yeah? So to share and willing to share. Uh, this is. Uh, whatever you do at the system level, this is an individual choice, whether mm. you like people and you love to share because it's maybe coming from the spine and not even from the from the rational mind. Mm. And as you're speaking now, I'm making up something because I don't know a great deal about collective intelligence, but what I'm imagining is that if I'm in an organization and I'm part of a team um, and collective intelligence is kind of part of the way that we work, it's part of our culture, I can imagine as an individual feeling like I belong, feeling like I'm part of something bigger than me that you know, it's more meaningful, it's more worthwhile, it's more fulfilling for the individual, as well as the fact that, you know, we're going to get our problems solved quicker, we're going to affect performance and the bottom line better. Is that true, Michael? Yeah, that's the, the I, I focused on the results or effects. It's yeah. true, you need to somehow identify with your group in a positive way uh, that of course contributes to the willingness to talk so the communication um, as such and there's great research from thomas malone from the mit that even uh, showing uh, um, humming of engagement mm, i'm with you uh, helps so that the content is not really the whole thing so the question uh, on an individual level if you identify with the team and you show signals of engagement to be part of it, that, that's important. And it's a lot of work to establish that. Even Julius Caesar mentioned it in one of his um, um, quotes where he said, well, a thousand soldiers are not an army. They need to have something in common. Otherwise, they, they don't behave effective. So you see it in all sorts of contexts, so from the military to, uh, to the family and from large organizations. The, the problem is that Latest scholar uh, studies show it dramatically that the engagement hasn't been that low. So people, of course, in large corporations have more and more troubles to engage, to feel as a part of it. Uh, otherwise, the figures would and the data would show different. And it's a leadership job to to uh, establish that kind of uh, collective identification the, the we feeling as we call it into german and the, the we call it in 1492 we call it the we brain mm -hmm. are you smart in a we brain or are you kind of an uh, external contributor yeah. uh, uh, without any, any emotions so it becomes very emotional so if you are not emotionally engaging the limbic system doesn't get into resonance you are in your rational mind, but that's not really all we need. Mm. Yeah, and I think we forget that. When I think about my clients over the years, you know, around the world in different countries, it, walking into like the reception, I get a sense just from sitting in the reception area waiting for my client or whatever it is, I get a sense of the culture of the organization. And I can notice that most of them, and I would say this quite openly to them as well, that they're, they're not in that we brain that you're talking about. It's like lots of individuals just getting their paycheck at the end of the day. It's like we've forgotten something about the value here. So we've talked here about all these benefits, individual benefits, you know, benefits to the organization. Why do so many leaders still ignore it? I, I think it's a habit. It's it's uh, culture as such in our, or in my definition, is, is a, a presence of the past. I, I took that quote from Rupert Sheldrick, which we engaged in the 90s, and, and I really love him very much. And it's amazing how far he uh, changed perspectives to a lot of stuff. And he describes culture as the presence of the past. So uh, a long time ago, somebody started something and then kind of you have not genes passing on the information. You have memes and from second, third, fourth generation, people just copy it blindly. 
And so it survives, even though it may have not the meaning uh, it started with. Uh, one example is that we, we had a large cooperation with quality reports, 300 people working on a quality report, which has uh, was sent out uh, every quarter. And we didn't know whether this creates some value. So we asked them under protest uh, to not send it out anymore. Yeah? Uh, and so we, we we made it ready and didn't send it out. So and really being curious what, what will happen now. Will the whole company collapse, not having <laughs> a quality report anymore? Or And then the only thing we got was a few thank you letters because it was some hundred pages, yeah? all categories mentioned or, or geographies. And so, and then some people said, well, thank you, not sending it anymore. I didn't know what, what it was for because it was created 15 years ago in a crisis and, and then the leaders left and other leaders uh, just passed it on. So there's a lot of unawareness and a lot of culture, which is by definition a blind spot that people say, well, we always, always did it like that. And it's a, a real art and a skill uh, to question what you do, uh, to break loose from a cognitive prison. And many people are in a kind of uh, unconscious ignorance. So they don't know what they don't know. And so they are, in a, in a way, they are innocent. Uh, from their subjective perspective, at least they are very innocent, like children. Nevertheless, when the shit hits the fan, the, the whole thing uh, is not the protection. And this is a mature understanding. If we want to reflect as a leader that if I don't know what I don't know, and I don't even look for it because there's no white hole in my brain noticing or making me capable of noticing the, the absence of information, then my innocence should be gone. And I should take responsibility and say, well, okay, then I have to manage the unknown uh, even with more uh, diligence than the known because the known is easy. And culture is always an unknown where you have assumptions you don't reflect. So therefore, we partly live all in a cognitive prison, even not smelling, not, not feeling, not uh, noticing the bars mm. unless we, we crash into something or there's a cultural clash then you say wow i assume this and you assume that and this is the reason why we we failed and th there's a nice german um uh, german is a very philosophical uh, language it's called scheitern which means failing uh, and being smart Zeit, sein. so it's the same word so in german you say well Smartness comes from failing. So Scheitern comes from Scheitern. Mm -hmm. And and I think there's some, some wisdom there. And that would be a leadership development, uh, actually, uh, class one yeah, right. to, to go on the market. <laughs> Before you go into skills and interventions and, and all sorts of participative stuff, uh, a lot of uh, leadership courses, they, they don't provide the foundation, which are really like an operating system carrying their apps. Mm. Yeah. And I like everything you're saying is completely resonating with me and my experience here. Now, it sounds like there are some, what would we call them? Maybe cultural prerequisites so that people even value this collective intelligence before they even embark on it. It's almost like, oh. do you know what I mean? Like the mindsets that are rife within organizational life and leadership that I see, I'm talking stereotypically here, I get that. So I'm making a sweeping statement, but very often it's the antithesis, I'm guessing, of what's needed for somebody to even value the collective approach. So what are those prerequisites, Michael? I think the first of all is that the task is the leader. Uh, I, I, I cannot really quote as a Tom Beck in one of his books. He said, well, it's a double helix. On the outside, you have the context of the environment. So what challenges do we face day by day? And how do we mirror that with our culture? And is there a fit or is there no fit? And a very famous quote from uh, not very um, well-perceived CEOs. They say, well, if the outside... Uh, change is faster than the inside, the, the, the end is near. So I think that 
recognizing and and really reflecting and analyzing the task and what is the requirement does my culture my beliefs my values my um, worldview does it uh, fit to the outside requirements and one um, element in the outside is the speed of change mm. and the presence of a lot of global Uh, phenomena at the same time. So, if my grandmother, she she was kind of she was my great grandmother. She was born eighteen eighty six. So she wow. only understood understood the emperor's rules. So for for her, there was not so much diversity in culture. So she knew maybe the Hungarian and the Austrian culture by tellings, but not by experience. And then she roamed. She didn't roam around a lot. She was a, a head headmaster, headmistress of a of a school, and that was it. So today we have uh, a lot of different challenges at the same time with a lot of ambiguity. And we created uh, an app called Akilometer. So how challenging is the outside? And then uh, flipping it to the inside in that sense, not using the inside from out but the outside in as a check and say, well, does it fit or not? And if not, where do we have to develop and evolve? Mm. So if somebody's listening to our conversation here and they're recognizing some of the issues that we're talking about that collective intelligence can help with, what might be the first steps? I mean, where where does somebody start with this? Because it feels like And I'm going to say this, and I'm playing devil's advocate here because I've heard my my clients, my leaders say things like this to me, which is, you know, this feels like a huge change that you're talking about here. Do we really want to open that can of worms? <laughs> uh, I think uh, if you if you look to change and change variations, I think there is a lot of tasks where you don't need collective intelligence. It's very good okay. to have subject matter experts to not uh, create this idea that one size fits all. Basically everything what we experience is collective intelligence uh, up front. Uh, I did not make that shirt myself. Right. I did not make the, the the smartphone. I'm having the Zoom call with you. I didn't program the app, uh, not at all. Not the room, not the car not the airplane, not the hospital. It was all an evolution where 10,000 of years, people were building on each other's ideas to really make it our civilization look that smart. But the, the driving force was the idea of our collective intelligence as a cultural heritage. So th that upfront. And translated that, having said that, uh, Basically, everything is collective intelligence, even the, the glass, the washing machine, the computers, the houses, uh, the roads. Uh, you didn't do it. Uh, we right. did it collectively for generations. Driven by our cultural evolution and uh, where we even evolve uh, the evolution itself by having very fast updates in our culture. Nevertheless, having said that, you don't need it if you have just a transactional administrative job, like payroll. My, my favorite example is payroll. Everybody loves, pay, uh, loves payroll in that regard that the money you earn from the company or the, you get from the clients comes every month at the same time. Right. Nobody, nobody loves uh, kind of unpredicted, agile working on payrolls. <laughs> one one day you get it the next day you don't and then you have a half of it and then the double nobody everybody hates it so therefore collective intelligence is not really needed you need subject matter experts who can streamline the process and make sure that this is is really good and and with hopefully zero mistake and nevertheless so to to, to run the organization You can really hand over to subject matter experts to a certain extent periodically and to the change your organizations. Therefore, you, you really need uh, the collective intelligence mm. pretty much. And in, in, if you look to other topics, uh, of course, where the rules, so that, that would be the definition, where the rules remain very stable for a long time, you can build up expertise because that takes time. Uh, and and therefore you need subject matter experts 
where the collective intelligence is not that relevant. But in the moment you encounter change in a certain magnitude, so change variation number one is if you fly in an aircraft, but you only have to fine tune the flaps to stay in cruising altitude. This is not the task of collective intelligence. But if one of your engine burns, and uh, then even the, the flight personnel should give you information because the pilot doesn't see it. Mm. So you need all eyes on all eyeballs on board to harvest the entire information available to make great decisions. Right. Uh, that makes otherwise, you don't do it. So there's a clear distinction where I would say, well, if the rules stay the same and there are very peculiar uh, phenomena like the uh, Russian uh, chess master, Mr. Kasparov, he was skilled to put every real late chess game in every situation back to, to the origin, to the starting position without mistake. So he can reverse engineer the entire uh, chess place which ever has been played because he's so skilled in, in applying those rules. But if children just put the chess figures randomly on a board, he, he fails completely because the context is gone. Mm -hmm. And if, uh, for example, in sports, tiny little rules change, like in skiing from the 70s to the 80s, uh, artificial snow from snow machines became uh, popular and that made the runs very icy. So mm -hmm. the top 10 couldn't digest that change in the environment and they, they resigned. And the next generation who were e, uh, in, uh, it eased to adapt. So, so experts are killed by small changes of the rules immediate, immediately and dramatically. This is why so many predictions of smart people kind of are absurd, like the, the one uh, who predicted that guitar music will never make it into popular culture and deny, declined or denied the, to, to, to produce the Beatles. So this was kind of looking to the past, to the rules and projecting it to the future, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And groups are very smart in handling uncertainty, very smart. Otherwise, we would not have survived the last uh, 12,000 years. We are extremely good in being anti-fragile, not just robust or sustainable. We become much better the more challenges we have, because then we put, pay more attention and we, we figure out new ideas. And groups, this is one of quote of the research, the individual intelligence is not really correlated with the group performance. So if you have a lot of smart people, that doesn't guarantee that the group performs. So put a lot of uh, Nobel Prize winner together, that, that doesn't mean that they really bring the next uh, level results. Because the knowledge is much, much more transactional than it was 50 years ago. So you need smart people who are well connected to acquire the information. As, as the quote says, knowledge is power. I would say data acquisition to gain knowledge is power. And mm -hmm. there we are deeply into the heart of collective intelligence, especially when the uh, rules of the games are changing through technology, through new uh, rules, uh, new regulation, even new demographics. Uh, they all create new rules like the Gen Set, uh, uh, Gen Set or the millennials created here, half of the workforce now, the baby boomers kind of uh, looking for retirement. So th this is a big change where values become very uh, favored for upgrades of values, and the old values don't work anymore, like hierarchy, like dominating people, this is the younger generation doesn't accept that because it's simply stupid. So an organization <laughs> which based by hierarchy of what? Yeah, everybody knows that the sea level has a limited amount of information, including the experts. This may be 30 smart brains right. in comparison to 3 million smart brains. No chance wow. because the data acquisition is no, everybody knows that. But it's still a kind of cultural reflex to accept stupid decisions from the board or the sea level and disengage. And that's a pity because it's not no need. And we have I've tons of examples <laughs> where 60,000 people say, no, don't do this. And the board <laughs> says, oh, yes, we do. So the comparison, or the, 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 
the more brains, if you would have all brains available, like the big tech companies, if you ask Gmail uh, and the Google algorithms, they have a lot of uh, brains available and understand patterns much, much better than um, people who are just trying to figure out the problem themselves. And it's kind of a transition from an ego system into an ecosystem thinking. The more ego you want to have, the, the less performance you get. And this is data. This is not just my opinion. This is, is and it's common sense. Yes. So uh, I love everything that you're sharing. I love that it's grounded in data. And what made me giggle as you were talking was it's so obvious when you say, you know, 30 smart brains opposed to 3 million <laughs> brains. It's so obvious. And it, it reminds me of there was a, uh, a doctor. She was also a journalist for the New York Times. And she did a, a whole series. And I, I think it actually came out on Netflix or somewhere where all these problems that uh, like that that people had that hadn't been able to find a medical diagnosis for, she just sure. wrote in the New York Times and then crowdsourced, which is exactly kind of what you're talking about. Absolutely. None of the doctors that these people had been to for their children or for themselves had been able to diagnose, and yet the crowd did with every single one. And so that was, you know, that's a great example of what you're talking about. Now I have to ask you this, Michael, because like, I feel it, I really want to know the what you say about this. So, so far we've been talking about collective intelligence as being human. Now, of course, we've got technology coming in, we've got artificial intelligence. Does that play a part in this now? Is that part of the integration of collective intelligence or is that separate from, what would you say? I think it's it's an, an an effect of our collective intelligence to be so smart to create even the next level on top of it, which from machine learning uh, to small it's it's in the in science we we call it kubernetes. So how do systems are kind of looped together so that they are working smart? And, and this is very much on the understandable at the level of a car you have a lot of sensors and if the if the engine gets overheated it blinks and shows you a signal so that you slow down so this is kind of feedback loops making the system work in a smart way and the question is who is doing the decision making mm -hmm. uh, and this is one uh, element uh, where or one dimension where many people mix up collective intelligence with uh, revolution and the French revolution and democracy. Mm -hmm. In collective intelligence, it's not a political uh, voting system that you put the power totally to the people and let them decide and you as a leader are obsolete. No, actually it's in being participative, including the whole brain to make smart decisions and then you execute it. And the second part is that a lot of apps also we developed, uh, they have such a beauty because you see whether it worked or it didn't work. So you have an uh, as is and a to be in, in figures. Mm -hmm. And then uh, like a leadership tool we call We Lead, uh, then you bring the entire stakeholder together and you reduce the leadership quality of a certain person into a percentage, one figure expressing the quality of my leadership. Mm -hmm. And because it measures expectations versus the feedback. So people say Michael should be uh, very open for change and they scale at, uh, in, a, in a scale from one to three, they scale all the three and they give me the feedback, I'm on a one. So they have a gap of two steps in that idea. And that would uh, in percentage maybe show 70%. Right. And if you and this is the, the entire data or information is kind of gathered and and acquired and harvested from the stakeholders around me, I would call it then really the uh, the essence of the collective intelligence on my leadership, which is much better than my assessments about myself because I'm so biased. Some people I like, some people I don't. So I would be all all off chart either way. And then the smartness comes in in terms of usually we do coachings <laughs> then with and you do coachings many people 
use coaching as a form of leading to say, well, how can you close the gap, Michael? Mm -hmm. And then we come up with a lot of ideas. Maybe you should, <clears throat> if it's openness for change, you shouldn't be so stubborn with the past and let go of the past. So let the future come. And so we, we would do a lot of stuff. And exactly there, we think and we we, we don't think we, we really applied AI already that the coaching is done by a person which has 20, 30 years of life experience. But if I do the coaching, I have a strong European Atlantic mindset mm -hmm. bias. So if I have an international team, it doesn't apply so much to people in India or China or Afghanistan or wherever. Mm -hmm. So this is the first kind of bias I, I need to confront myself. So in using the entire we brain of all the people who ever did it, it's 40,000 people who, who gave already feedback and letting a smart machine learning look at the pattern and then uh, let the uh, artificial intelligence suggest some coaching interventions. Mm -hmm. I, I bet, and we know that, if you are not really good in your craft, uh, then the, the artificial intelligence is much better and we can have a proof. So because if my score on that dimension is 70, this interval, and we do it again, maybe in December, and the AI supported me with suggestions out of the data, we see immediately whether it worked or not. Mm. So we have a self-learning loop there that we compete humans or we did competitions between humans and people with a lot of work experience in the AI. And of course, the, the top, top intuitive, smart geniuses, gurus, they are outperforming today the AI, but it's much better than average. Mm. And it's economic, the business case, you program the AI once and you save a lot of coaches for the standard business, for the commodity business too. And you you be notched by an AI say, well, Michael, next meeting, uh, you should pay attention on doing this and that. Uh, similar to reminding me to our meeting, you sent me a gentle reminder. And this is so much easier than leading analog. Mm -hmm. We love it. Uh, not as a complete... A kind of revolution it's it's like a, a power steering in your car it makes leading people so much easier because you distribute the leadership work on first of all collective intelligence to the more people the better and then you using ai to really make it smart 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 in a very effective way and we assume this is the future to have a lot I would not say everything. I cannot, uh, from our perspective, AI will not um, replace all the consultants and all the coaches, but using collective learning, collective intelligence powered by AI will definitely disrupt the entire commodity business of, I would say, 70% of consultants. Very similar to banks. We need banking, but we don't need banks. We need... Uh, smart advice and consulting, but we don't need consultants. Mm. You need the collective intelligence and the smart algorithm who understands whether the effect was really there or not. And the rest is really machine learning and, and using the entire collective intelligence uh, up front to then be uh, even as smart and beyond. And I don't speak about general AI, so like uh, machines with a consciousness, uh, it's, uh, it's very mathematic. And mm. we have great, very promising results there. That So the daily nudging to remind you to, to not fall into the same trap all over every time and all over again uh, can be, it will be done in the next 10 to 20 years with smart apps and smart AI-driven um, mm. kind of uh, leadership techniques. Mm. Uh, of course, there will be a revolution of the revolution going on, which makes even my prediction not uh, not 
guarantee. But we, we have great projections into the future where we see and we put all, all the money there that mm. we understand that, for example, crafting a strategy for, for corporates or for any company, you can do that on your own, but you it's much easier if you include the whole brain, the we brain, for a very small fee. And then what chain of events do you have to perform in order to end up into in your vision? This is something where you need a lot of expertise, but now you have access to the to eight uh eight billion people. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. And asking them, and I th we we went through the valley of tears in that idea. We thought this is a Robin Hood idea <laughs> to really engage everyone in Africa and in uh, in in Uzbekistan uh, in collective intelligent ideas, even before there was a smart contract uh, blockchain system available. And then we pay them. Yeah? So the future vision of the early, late 90s was we will have organizations in the future where the people who create the value get the money and they pay everybody who helped them. Mm. So this wow. is kind of a flip of the pyramid. Yeah. That, yeah? yeah. And now we are, we are really close because in a blockchain setting uh, based on collective and artificial intelligence, it's not really an utopic idea. It's not Jules Verne. It's possible. Uh, we need to shape it uh, to a certain extent, but in small scale, we have great projects where that already happened in private equity and venture, where it's much more ambitious and faster. The crowd is very, very precise in the coordination of who gets, who has contributed the most, who gets the most money. And then you can, even though, pay the people where you think you they helped you. And the rest goes into the profit. Mm. Oh my gosh. I love that. I love how you're talking about AI being an enhancement for our lives Absolutely. as humans, rather than, you know, the fear mongering of we're going to lose control and it's going to take over and all that kind of stuff. Cause that feels like something really worthwhile in terms of pursuing uh, as humans. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, uh, you know, the evidence actually comes from UK where uh, you have, uh, you're born in the UK. Aren't yeah. You? Yes. I read an I, I in I, I was teaching uh, as an associate professor in, in a business school north of London in Ashridge, and oh, therefore yeah. I I got uh, I, I got a, a newspaper article from the uh, from a dear friend of mine who was also working in change organization change, and he um, brought a very old newspaper from nine from eighteen. 30 or 1840, where the uh, uh, British uh, doc uh, Medical Doctor Society was warning that people using using trains, because at the speed of 30 <laughs> miles, it blows your lungs into pieces and you're dead. <laughs> so, so of course we laugh about it, but I think it's yeah. a very, it's a very good example that yeah. if something new happens. We run into the fear bias, right. even collectively, and then it takes a while because I think this maybe in the Stone Age escaping a saber tooth tiger was very relevant, but, but this will not happen to me in the Greek island where I'm now uh, <laughs> tomorrow because there are no saber tooth tigers. But nevertheless, our mind goes yeah. into a fear bias, so we fear, of course, the idea that we have. Uh, Terminators running around right. in machines, and <laughs> of course, I think uh, people are dangerous enough. Yeah, if there's yes. a lack of diversity, uh, and if there's no collective intelligence, which I call collective stupidity, it's even more dangerous than uh, than artificial intelligence. Our collective stupidity is we underestimate how many people or how many groups there are and how dangerous they are. And and I would rather be scared of collective stupidity than on artificial intelligence <laughs> and not sending out uh, warnings that your lungs uh, is blown into pieces <laughs> by using a train. I, I think it needs uh, a lot of careful 
uh, understanding. And I think the decision is already done because I think humans are so curious that they do everything and then think later, like uh, like the Wild West cowboys shoot first, ask, ask, <laughs> ask then. And, and uh, Noam Harari warns us about that. Of course, it's dangerous if you have kind of unmature people with the finger on the trigger for atomic bombs it's 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 a risk uh, and, and I'm, I'm not just with for shrinking but in collective and artificial intelligence i think we will run into something which is really good uh, providing a lot of support uh, to run organizations or to rehumanize organizations, so to to or democratize organizations, so that they become smarter and more engaging. So, I do need to ask now because you've hinted at this a little bit so far through our conversation. Like, what is your work in service of? What's that future vision that you're contributing to with your work, Michael? As we have said uh, in our preparation, I think it it took a long time to find a real um, mission, mm. which is our vocation. And I we would phrase it. I think all fourteen ninety two people would phrase it that we we really are passionate about enriching the world with collective intelligence. And knowing that the enrichment needs to be in the minds of people first and then in the groups and then before it comes into uh, the balance sheet and the bank account uh, to be enriched in a monetary sense. So in collective intelligence, as I've said earlier, is based on good relations. Mm. Otherwise, you don't acquire the right information you need to solve a problem. So I think this is a, a, a great thing because if social relations between humans if they are enriched then future has a chance mm. if not then the then there's less information transfer and then there is of course coordination suffering and uh, in going back to the metaphor we started in in your physical body if your brain wouldn't communicate with your legs and if the if the organs wouldn't they don't even think about sympathy or or not they they are online in all the data in real time so therefore you can ski and and create poems and and sing and i think if that's disturbed because your brain doesn't communicate with your legs, you're paralyzed and sit in a wheelchair. And you don't wonder if we have organizations in silos, of course they are dysfunctional because there's no communication going, not the required communication going there or families who are not speaking and sharing with each other, of course they become dysfunctional. And so they cannot use the collective intelligence of diverse groups and uh, because Diversity is a prerequisite. So if everybody's the same, then there's no, and you have all the information, all the others have, there's no benefit. So you need diversity, uh, cognitive diversity with different perspectives in a room who talk together to really have a lot of data, a lot of information. And, and therefore you, you need, if, if somebody speaks or shares something which is not your opinion or no, no values, of course we are challenged. Uh, to to accept it as an enrichment mm. but this is the personal development stuff which kind of boosts of course the collective intelligence later mm. okay michael i'm going to come with one final question and it's yes, just please. simply this it's just simply this like do you have any final words of wisdom for our audience now it might be something that you know, you wanted us to cover that we haven't had time to do, or maybe we've not covered it yet, or maybe it's just some final insights that you'd like to leave people with. What might it be? I, I really like to repeat the the insight or the, one of the essence for on a personal level from the research and the experiences we had with over 2,000 projects around the world from 
really from Afghanistan to Myanmar, from from worlds and societies in conflicts to prosperous places of the West and, and the East. If you can build great relations and if you can enrich those relations, then you will um, have a great future. And that is also something which applies to society. It applies to families and it applies to society. So if you have negative um, primings on these guys are like that, and if you create hatred and enemies, of course, there's no communication going. You build up ideas in your mind and two weeks later, they're all negative. And that's a pity because you haven't checked it. So and if you stay in communication, this is what I think collective intelligence on a personal level is about. If you stay in a sharing, prosperous, enriching assumption that the world is not a cake and you need to get a big share out of the cake, it's an eternal cake which grows depending on your creativity. So there's no scare city situation. There's always abundance uh, and the more you use the we brain, the more you experience it. I love that metaphor of the cake. That's great. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much. I have completely enjoyed our conversation today. And I know our listeners will have got quite a lot of insights from what you've shared. So thank you so much, my friend. No, no, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure sharing with you. And I hope if... Some um, people have uh, have a resonance feeling for it. On the one hand, it's common sense. And if it's unconsciously used, then of course, you're not um, really making the best out of it. If you use it deliberately because you know it's working, then you can have more happy days. And in the company, you have more happy days with great results and more engagement. It's, collective intelligence is not just better and cheaper and uh, faster. It's really great fun. Thank you. Okay, guys, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening in. Now, before we go, I want to remind you that all of the resources and the links for our guests are in the show notes at sacredchangemakers.com. A big thank you to the members of the Sacred Changemakers Inner Circle, who are our podcast sponsors and our extended community, who are helping us make a global impact aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, all visible on our website. And if you're looking for more soul in your life and business, if you have a sense that you too have a calling, maybe you're here to make a bigger impact or simply connect with others on your change-making journey. If our episode resonated with you today, I hope you'll consider joining us. Again, you can find out more at sacredchangemakers.com. But for now, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your intention and efforts to change our world. And until next time, lots of love.